Welcome to the discussion. This is actually the second part of a two-part uh, interview with Dr. Alexis Crow, who leads the geopolitical investing practice at PwC. Uh, we went over a lot of topics in the first episode. We'll go over even more in the second episode and more in depth on areas uh, ranging from climate change to affordable housing to the added risks of polarization and a really interesting conversation. I want to make sure you listen to this one uh, on migration and the changing nature of our secondary, tertiary, and superstar gateway cities and how that might impact our investment strategies going forward. You are listening to the AFR podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. There has been a lot of discussion this month, in November of uh, 2021, uh, uh, right after the 26th uh, UN Climate Conference uh, in Scotland. Uh, there was a lot of very interesting conversations, different from what they were before. Certainly, it's never enough. But how do you think some of the things that are coming out of that may change the discussion that we're having in real estate and real estate investing? This word, when, when you're describing this, it comes to mind for me is stewardship. And this is where I think that real estate does need to take a more proactive, uh, offensive role in the market with regard to stewardship of the built environment. If we think about you know, the proportion of building stock that will be present by the year 2040 or 2050, you know, it's already here. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> to the extent that we are stewards and custodians of that built environment, um, I think is going to be important. And this is where, again, that the true differentiating aspect of PropTech comes in with regard to transparency, reporting, yeah. reducing operating, you know, from the development side and, and the operating side as well. Um, so I think that's going to be crucial. It's it's obviously going to be driven by younger people too. And we're seeing this by, you know, some of the investment houses creating a whole new talent mandate with regard to hiring ESG personnel. One of my colleagues at Columbia Business School has recently and done a whole event and talking about how if you're seeking a job in ESG, where do you go? Yeah. You know, what do you study? And and mm -hmm. and this, that's a whole burgeoning field in terms of of talent, which I think is going to become important. But it's connected also gone into that that point you made on the S in the community. And you know, that's a loaded word. But what I would say is it's certain certainly something in the local dynamics. It's certainly something that became important for all of us during COVID. A number of different uh, data shows that for people who had um, an identity in terms of their local community and a connection to their local community, they fared far better psychologically throughout the crisis than those that didn't. Right. Um, so to the extent that real estate, you know, contributes to, uh, you know, a, a more nurturing community, I think is going to be important. And, um, you know, my partner, Byron Carlock, talks about, you know, the live, work, play dynamics, which we've looked at. I think that's, that's clearly important. Others have talked about central living districts as opposed to CBDs, um, you know, that's where you're really having to think outside of the box in terms of, uh, of being a developer. The other, you know, component to this is on the campaign trail Biden did talk about was the OZ play just a play for gentrification and 
you know, to what extent are we really seeing credible opportunities develop in communities? And that's another dynamic to consider. Um, you know, you have the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, talking about the issues surrounding um, the vacation rentals, you know, investment properties in Paris, you know, all contributing to a frothy housing market. So what I've said to some investors is, look, if you want prime Parisian real estate in the resi, in the retail, you know, across the commercial space, develop some affordable options too. Yeah. yeah. It's like a, it's a social offset. Well, it's not just the social offset. Part of the problem with affordable housing is that people go down. If they can't find something they can afford at the, the top level, they go down one, they go down one. So you've got people living in what was traditionally affordable housing that are doing pretty well, but that's all they could afford. Um, and I, I think part of the problem we have is just not enough housing. You know, Absolutely. It's across Absolutely. the board. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the other dynamic, something I've, I've written a lot about is, okay, affordable housing crosses a whole spectrum from, you know, young professionals all the way down to homeless housing yeah. and everything in between. It is the single largest demand category in the United States in terms of rent and the single shortest in supply. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, we have to fix it. Well, connected to that to a certain extent, um, you talk a lot about superstar cities. Um, and about secondary cities and about how that all fits. And part of what seems to be driving that is housing and affordability of housing. Um, what are your thoughts about different markets and, and where things are going? Oh, thank you. So I, I would say that, you know, this is the theme that's been dominant in, in our emerging trends in real estate um, reports over the years. Um, I would say certainly since the, for over the last five years. Um, we've had questions as to whether or not this is a flash in the pan. And when there's a massive correction in pricing, will people just flood out of the secondary cities because some GPs have been burned that way yeah. in the US market, and then there's a, a flood back to the gateway cities? Well, guess what? We've had that correction in price in New York. We've had it in San Francisco, and it was very short. <laughs> I would say that the number of dynamics that are present to lend themselves to um, an allure for, for people in secondary cities um, remains the same since COVID-19 and some, in some senses, I think has been um, accelerated, but I would still say, I, I wanna come back to them, back to basics and stick with those core dynamics. The core dynamics, as you say, are you know, greater affordability of living, the cost of living um, for you know not only housing, but just across the amenity landscape as well. Um, I love this concept that Edward Glazer talks about, which is called agglomeration effects. Um, and then you think about labor market pooling and efficient labor market pooling. And this is why I love a Dallas or an Atlanta or a Nashville over a San Antonio or an Austin as a secondary city, because you have an extraordinary labor market pooling. Okay, let's, let's just pause on that. Um, so my investors said this year that Austin was their favorite market and you just, you just dissed it. Um, and so the question is, Let's just take a moment and expand that a little bit. Why not Austin? Everyone loves Austin. Because if I am going to move from New York down to Austin for a specific job and I get phased out of one job, I'm unlikely to find my dream job out of the hat or an array of opportunities in the way that a cross-sector city such as Atlanta or Dallas offers. Really, it's dominated by a couple of companies at best uh, there is a, there and that has benefited from a California to Texas off ramp, 
and some are questioning the durability of that off-ramp. You're seeing Davin Newsom make a lot of interesting incentivizations to, re, you know, to reattract talent, to retain people. Um, and if I'm not in tech, it's not a place to be. Um, another thing that some of the people who've done this sort of COVID flight exodus from the gateway cities have forgotten that the wages change. Uh, you yes. might have a lower cost of living, <laughs> but for the first time in years, wage data in the tech industry in the United States is slipping because of that California, Texas off ramp. Interesting. Interesting. And to a certain extent, what you're describing with Austin sounds more like Detroit. You know, it's a one industry town dominated by a couple of players, and that's about it, which has a higher risk. And certainly, associated. you know, tech is, you know, there's certainly there's a there's a whole array of different tech companies. If you want to think about, you know, new energy vehicles and then you want to think about software production, et cetera. Um, you know, another thing that contributes to a rich ecosystem for tech or others is the extraordinary educational and research components that surround this, which is why San Diego is so powerful for biotech which is why Silicon Valley has been so powerful to support tech across the spectrum. Um, this is why Atlanta, you know, strong university system, Nashville, strong universities, um, Dallas, strong research institutes. So that's where I would say that, you know, again, that's something that's kind of missing from other cities. Well, circle back a little bit on Atlanta. That, I think, is an interesting story over the last 15, 20 years um, and, and driven to a certain extent by right around Georgia Tech and all the things that are going on around that. But can you tell us a, a little bit more about what you think is happening in Atlanta and where it's going? Um, certainly affordability um, and economic opportunity. When I've spoken uh, with my, you know, the person driving the car that I'm riding around in in Atlanta, they would have moved from the East Coast further down south because of economic opportunity. And they said I just came, you know, because I was seeking growth. Right. Um, and there, you know, just the extraordinary infrastructure. We talked about airports together. You know, the extraordinary infrastructure of the airport um, and I would say, um, you know, relatively uh, benign climate. Uh, you do have some weather related events, but relatively benign climate, I think, are positive factors. Yeah. Um, and just the extraordinary number of employers that are present there, as well as thinking about, you know, things that the government is doing to court industries like filming and yeah. offering tax incentives to court more, you know, content creation and film production. That's been an amazing success story over the last 10 years or so. I mean, just amazing. So great airports in Atlanta, great airport in Dallas. Denver. Denver, great airport. Nashville. It, why is Nashville still on your list? Just, I think the talent landscape as well, just thinking about universities feeding in there. And, you know, again, like Atlanta, you have the same time zone as Eastern time zone. So we are seeing some of the, you know, continued FS um, back office continue to move down. Mm -hmm. um, to Nashville, which I think has been important and notable. Yeah. Um, so is there a, a, a couple of different categories then that, that you're thinking of when you look at secondary cities, secondary cities that, that will behave like they've always behaved <laughs> as the economy comes and goes, and those that are another kind of subset of these superstar cities? For me, I think it's that, it's that effective labor market pooling. Okay. Um, and that's where I would be, you know, looking at, and, and how durable is that? Is it back office? Is it front office? Um, there I'm thinking about a little bit about Florida as well. And is it back office? Is it front office? Where are the deal makers going to be? Yeah. 
um, what are the infrastructure links like? You know, and this is where, you know, Denver and the light rail, you know, connecting the airport, I think is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so that millennials can travel as well, once that's a possibility. Yeah. Um, I think are, are other dynamics. So for me, I think the, the top two would be infra and labor market. Okay. I think that makes tremendous sense. Now, there's a counter, possibly, uh, when we talk about uh, global warming, when we talk about uh, you know issues around rising sea levels, rising amount of fires, lowering level of potable water. Um, much of the hot markets in the United States, uh, I think Phoenix, literally hot, um, you know, D Miami and others are having some real issues. Uh, do you see a, I mean, and, and the migration in the United States from the North to the South has been going on for 20 years and it has been somewhat accelerating uh, in the last five. Um, do you see a mitigation of that migration pattern or a change in that? Um, what do you think is going to happen? Certainly hasn't impacted the migration patterns. I know. Uh, so just the question of if you gave me $100 million to invest, um, you know, this is where it's, it's instructive to think about some of the teams from the Netherlands going to advise, you know, uh, you know cities at, at risk of sea level rise because the Netherlands has had to deal with this for centuries. Um, so I... I do believe that we are ingenious. I do believe that we do have, you know, ways of mitigating. Unfortunately, for every, you know, extraordinary ingenuity, you will have a Sandy. Um, you will have an Irma or wh whoever the next hurricane is. Um, but it's certainly not impacting the, the migration patterns. What I would say is, again, where you have the associated sea level rise, it's often in a place where you have restricted space just geographically to build. Um, so I think you are going to have to get more clever uh, if you're investing in New York, if you're investing in San Francisco, if you're investing uh, in Miami about where exactly you do and how those developments are made. So we're going to have to be smarter. Excellent. I, I, I don't want to depend on that. I don't always want to depend on smart. I, I'd rather have something else kind of going on. But speaking of smart and intelligence and, and thereof, we have now had uh, 10 years of rising political populism across the globe. Um, and, and as a consequence, you know, we've had a lot more kind of political volatility um, as we go forward. In, in the past, when we would invest in emerging markets, investors would take that into account and have some sort of something on their underwriting sheet that they'd say, all right, what is the political risk and where does that look? Uh, are you hearing from folks that are starting to look at uh, the more the, the well-off and established uh, economies and, and add a little bit more of a political risk quotient to it as they try to figure out how to underwrite it? Or is, or is that still to come? That's a great question. And I think another way of, of positioning it is you know, prior to 2016, institutional investors and, and, and investors in real assets across the board with sticky capital to deploy would be weighing up you know, the risk-benefit, risk-reward ratio of investing in EMDEs versus advanced economies, which is to say, is it riskier to invest in Vietnam or in France? And obviously, with Brexit, that has upended things. And we've seen capital flows um, respond in kind. You know, it's interesting. It's, um, you know, 
London as a city and the UK as a country has finally regained the crown in terms of European capital flows in real estate, in the real estate market, um, whether or not that's uh, uh, misguided is another question. But it's interesting if you think about um, the rise in house prices in the Frankfurt market since 2016, and it's extraordinary double-digit increases year on year, in part because of this Brexit offset. Right. So, you know, the, the question I've asked with colleagues, um, you know, in the investment industry across the board is, will you still have a reward, you know, ratio for investing in an emerging market economy? And that's where I'd say, like, so what are some of the attendant risks? The risk of nationalization of an asset, the risks of slowing demand, et cetera. Um, this is kind of getting also into the infra space, but if you think about investing in an airport, you know, you still have significant political risk associated with, say, the the ADP in Paris um, uh, versus Mumbai, uh, which some of the LPs and GPs have invested in. Um, so here, I, I think taking a step back, what is evident is we still have the home bias. And I really, I really get the temperature reading on this when I spend time in Europe with some of the GPs and LPs. Um, we, yes, Alexis, you talk about Vietnam and India, um, maybe Israel, but no, we are here in Europe and we're in North America and that's where we want to stay. Uh, that's kind of the general consensus. You also see that interestingly playing out in terms of climate finance, where um, you know the majority of climate financing raised is still held within the country um, or deployed in the country where it's raised. Some of the big movers and shakers are saying, yes, we still want to have 35 to 50 percent of our portfolio in North America, but the U.S. is looking pretty polarized these days. So that's the question of, is this, you know, was the Brexit referendum, was Trumpism, you know, was the Le Pen uh, concern in France um, uh, just a sort of feature of the post-GFC, you know, sharp level rise in inequality, you know, since the 1970s in the post-GFC environment? Or is it something to, as a permanent feature of our investing landscape or in the, in the medium term? That's where I would actually probably highlight that 2022 is going to be a hot political year. Yeah. Got the midterms coming up in the US, you got elections in Brazil, you've got elections in France. And I think it's going to be a referendum on politicals, political leaders' ability to have managed the pandemic well, mm -hmm. which by and large, most people agree wasn't managed well. That is a question that is being asked by some stewards of capital is, yeah. is there a huge risk in a deepening polarized America of investing in an OZ? of investing in cities that are going to be held up in riots. I mean, this is this is a question. Um, I would say that still that home bias continues to dominate um, and to hit back at that. Um, so for the global pools of capital, the other question you need to ask about, not the risk of nationalization, which is some of the attendant risk of populism, but the risk of slowing growth and just thinking about the long-term demand continuum. And that's where I would say, unfortunately, to kind of round back up to where we began, just thinking about economic activity, that's where I would say that an asynchronous economic recovery bifurcated in terms of countries that are further down the income, you know, the low to medium income countries versus rich income um, is, is one of the more permanent shocks from COVID.
Mm-hmm. And that's where you know real income losses in comparison with 19, 2019 levels uh, for households are on average 11% in advanced economies versus 20% in emerging market developing economies. Don't think trade is dead. I don't think globalization is dead. But a lot of the driving forces that have been um, contributing to some of the fastest growing economies in the world in Southeast Asia have been um, curtailed, yeah. Yeah. moderated. I can't leave it there because you've just bummed me out. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we are often asked to talk about what we're, we're most excited about or what's most interesting. I'm going to give you a little bit of a twist on that question in that. What is it that you're interested, excited about that no one else is paying attention to right now? What are the, the, the secret sparks of optimism when you look across your desk? Well, that's where, like, to come back to this question about the various forms of inequality, that's where I would say that, and and also what can real estate investors and developers contribute to? Where are there examples of growth-friendly fiscal policy or pro-growth means of combating inequality over the longer term? Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I'm focused on, and I think it's very attractive to think about. You know, where are there best practices whether it's a government like Singapore investing in a skills future fund, whether it's a company like, I'm not gonna name names, but thinking about no collar jobs and generating jobs for people with you know no college degrees, but discernible skills. That's where I would say that like that's those are the seeds of hope. Um, and to what extent can the private sector intervene and fill a gap and avoid in that deficit of trust that many are facing with regard to political institutions, media, et cetera. And I think that's where private capital has a role to play. Executives have a role to play. No doubt. Well, uh, thank you. I think we've run out of time here, but uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I just, uh, yeah, I want to thank you, Alexis, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Gunnar. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.